0: Our scripture reading this morning is going to be out of Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1, Pew Bible page 1301, Daniel chapter 1, hear now the word of the Lord, in the third year. Of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel And of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, skillful in all wisdom, and cunning and knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat, and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah of Shadrach, of Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs... That he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs, and the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink, for why should he see your face worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall you make me endanger my head to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants. I beseech thee ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat, and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat, and as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter, proved them ten days. At the end of the ten days, their countenances appeared fairer, fatter in the flesh, than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink, and gave them pulse. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, Then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king communed with them, and among them all was found none, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and the astrologers that were in his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing over the sermon today. Father, we come again before you to ask that you would give us wisdom as we finish looking at Daniel chapter one this morning. I pray that we would uh, be able to apply these things that we learn to our lives, that we would not be idle listeners, but doers of your word. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you recall... We had a part one to this sermon. We looked at the history leading up to the captivity of Israel in Babylon. We looked at the first kingdom of Babel, which was the spiritual precursor to the kingdom of Babylon that came many hundreds of years later. We saw how God uses these wicked empires for his own purposes. The first point in the sermon today that I would like for us to look at in this passage is that judgment comes by the wicked on the people of God. This is the first point I want us to look at today, that judgment by the wicked comes onto the people of God. Now, this may seem counterintuitive, right? Throughout the scriptures, for instance, the psalms that we sing today, Like the psalmist is always very confident that God has delivered him from the hands of the wicked man, that the wicked man is put down by the Lord. And this is most certainly the case. God does judge the wicked. God will destroy the wicked. This is without doubt, without question. But there are times in history that God will use wicked men who have great power to judge the people of God. We can see this repeatedly in the Old Testament with Israel, which was the church of God at that time, going into various captivities and judgments due to their own wickedness, things that they knew better. For instance, as we looked at in the previous sermon on this topic, we saw the wicked kings over Judah, how they desecrated the temple, how they brought in false gods into the temple and used the, the, the temple of God to offer sacrifices to these pagan gods, how they allowed the sodomites to build homes around the temple and the, the, the kings were extremely wicked and they knew better than this. They had the book of the law. And so in their wickedness, as the people of God doing worse, it says, if you recall, it says that they did worse than the pagan nations that God had driven out before them. So there are times where the church of God loses its saltiness, loses its savor. And when that happens, God judges the church and brings it back into shape. And he does this through wicked men. Romans 8 tells us that we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with them, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So with this amazing reality that we are the children of God, we are joint heirs with Christ. Christ is our God, but he is also our brother. That's an amazing reality. But with that reality means that we are the children of God. And with being a child comes chastisement when we misbehave. You know, today is Father's Day and it's a shout out to all the fathers out there who walk in righteousness before the Lord and teach their children the ways of of God. I want you to think about the leadership that a father provides in a home. It's a place where a father provides, he protects. A good father knows that when his children misbehave, you don't turn a blind eye to that. When your children misbehave, it's a disservice to that child to turn a blind eye to their rebellion. It actually harms the child. The scriptures tells us that if we love our children... We rebuke them, we chastise them, we disciple them in righteousness. And in the same way, we are the children of God and when we do not obey the words of God, it tells us that our Father chastises us. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, Hebrews 12 tells us. He scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement whereof of all our partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have the fathers of the flesh, which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much more rather be in subjection under the father of spirits and live for they for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure? But he for our profit that we might be partakers in holiness. You know, we as human fathers, we don't do chastisement perfectly all the time and tell you I've chastised my children in anger sometimes. And it's probably not that productive. Right here, it says that the fathers will chastise based on their own pleasure. Right? We make up the rules in the home and we chastise our kids for those rules that we've created. But it says our heavenly father chastises us because he wants us to be partakers in holiness This is why God is so strict with the church of Christ. Now, when we see, for instance, I was at the zoo the other day, and I was walking around, and I saw this husband and wife, and they had one child, which I would assume, based on their actions, was their only child. She was about five years old, and she was throwing the largest tantrum I had ever seen. And both the mother and the father were like, hunched down over the child, trying to give her everything that she could possibly want to calm her down. There was no chastisement. They were just servants to this little five-year-old tyrant. They were doing her a great disservice by doing that. She will grow up the rest of her life, imagining that that's how the world works. Did I chastise that child when I saw her misbehaving like that? I did not. Why? Because she's not my child. And in the same way, oftentimes in the world around us, we will see great wickedness. And we're like, why is God not just instantly stopping that? Because I know when I sin, the conviction of the Holy Spirit hits me. Things are disrupted in my home. God, the chastisement comes fast. But oftentimes these wicked people will live decades in revelry and sin and lasciviousness and lust and Why does God not just instantly stop it? Well, they are not the children of God. You know that there is a figurative sense in which all men are children of God, but not a literal sense. God did create all of us, but not all men are his children. There are vessels prepared for wrath for the day of judgment, Romans 9 tells us. So God concerns himself with his church And sometimes he's so concerned with his church that he will allow these wicked men that are prospering in their wickedness to flourish over the church. But none of it happens outside the hand of God. For their day of judgment is coming, but they are not his children. He's not concerned with their walk of holiness. He's concerned about his church. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. It says, no, and in Hebrews, it says, no, now no, chastening for the present seems to be joyous. No chastening seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Meaning, while God's chastening you, it doesn't seem like a good thing. It's kind of the worst, but nevertheless, after it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them, which are exercised thereby. And this chastisement happens both on a corporate level, as we saw with Israel being led away into captivity. It happened to the entire group, but it also happens on a personal level. If we read Daniel 1 again here in verse 1, it says that Jehoiakim was king of Judah. and Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged it. And verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury house of his God. And he spoke unto Ashpenaz, master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain children of Israel and of the king's seed, excuse me, and of the princes, children of whom was no blemish, but well favored. So we see Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as was their new names who were godly young men who also suffered under this corporate disobedience of Israel. Before we look at that in more detail, one thing I want to draw your attention to here is it says that when the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, he carried those into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. If you remember, as we were looking at the wickedness of Israel leading up to this captivity, what did Israel do with the house of God? It brought in the pagan vessels into the house of the Lord. What does God do in retribution to their disobedience? He allows the holy vessels of the house of God to go into the pagan temples and be carried away into captivity. And if you were living during this time, I just want you for just a minute to suspend your understanding of of history, and pretend you're living in this time right here. You witness the evil wickedness of the kings of Judah. You see the temple of God being desecrated, pagan sacrifices and homosexuality running rampant in the temple of God. And then God doesn't stop that. What does he do? He allows a pagan king who practices all manner of wickedness, probably human sacrifice, everything else that the pagan nations did is allowed to come have victory over the people of God and carry away the holy things of the temple into a pagan temple. If you witnessed that, you would think to yourself, God is not in control of anything. God's not, this can't be. Why would God allow such great devastation to his holy temple? Much like today, I've heard many a Christian tell me, well, God can't be king now. He can't be reigning now because look at the wickedness of the world around us. Well, I disagree. What does the scriptures tell us? All of this was done on purpose by God. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar for this purpose and gave Jehoiakim into his hands and purposefully carried away the temple artifacts as a message, as a symbol to Israel of what they had done. God does not need Israel's worship, nor does he need the temple artifacts to be maintained in some holy way. It is all just a symbol and reverence to God. But God uses these things and its desecration as a judgment and a chastisement upon his children so that they could walk in righteousness again. So it is throughout the book of Daniel that we see back to the four young men being carried away here. These are faithful young men and they are facing this chastisement of God despite their own personal faithfulness. This takes us to our second point. So our first point was that God uses the wicked to chastise the righteous. Second point is the remnant also suffer during this time. The remnant suffer as well during this time. Just because on a personal level we may be faithful to God, it does not mean that we are going to be spared from the general judgment of God upon the wickedness of his church. There can be faithful individuals, faithful congregations that are caught up in the judgment of God as we see with Daniel and his friends here. They were godly young men, none were found wiser. And as we will see here in a minute, they did not compromise when it came to even possibly losing their lives. They did not compromise their religious devotion to the Lord. Yet, they were still carried away in captivity to Babylon. Much like today, we have wicked rulers in charge. We have judgment coming upon our nation. And we suffer for it just like everybody else does. Our economy is, t- is, is terrible. The dollar is losing value. And my dollar has lost as much value as the wicked man's dollar. Right? We face the judgment of God. But it is for our refinement. In the midst of this chastisement, the faithful remnant are caught up in this machine of judgment. And so the faithful remnant while being caught up in judgment, must remain faithful. They know their allegiance to their God supersedes whatever power man may have over them. Therefore, they do not quake or quiver at the judgment that they see coming down upon the church of God. Rather, they maintain their confidence in the midst of of captivity, as our sermon is titled, Faith in Captivity first sermon was looking at God's faithfulness towards his people in the midst of captivity, but also the faithfulness of the remnant in their captivity. Scripture tells us not to fear those who can destroy the body, but rather fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. What you will see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, as Christians and followers of Christ and our God are carried away into swept away into the judgment that comes upon the church from time to time, we will see that the faithful remnant do not fear what is coming upon them. They fully are aware of the fact that God is bringing this judgment and they are fully aware of the fact that they are walking in righteousness before God and they are going to continue to do so. And they have confidence that God will protect them in the midst of this captivity, which brings us to our third point today, which is that they are fully reliant upon God for basic needs, even so much so as to not in any way compromise with evil during the judgment. So as the remnant, we are to be fully reliant upon God for even our most basic needs with with uh, unwillingness to compromise in the evil judgment. Here at the beginning of this story, we see that the king commanded for these boys to be given meats and wines. He was looking for Uh, wizards to be added to his kingdom. He was looking for wise men that could come and learn all of the pagan mystery religions that uh, found its root in the old spiritual Babel. We know throughout looking at history and extra biblical texts, including biblical texts, that the mystery religions were very strong from Babel through Egypt all the way up to the Babylonian Empire. They were obsessed with occult-type activities human sacrifice, astrology, uh, demonology, they were all very much into all of these things. And so the astrologers and the magicians, throughout history, we see uh, true magic being carried out. We look at the, the staffs of the magicians of Egypt turning into snakes and serpents. But what God repeatedly shows throughout all of the evil magic of the world is that his power supersedes anything that they may have. For instance, Moses' serpent swallowed up the serpents of the magicians of Egypt and they were baffled at his power. And here in Babylon, we see throughout the book of Daniel, God's power over these pagan magicians dominated over and over again. Here at the very beginning we see, in a small way, through the food that is offered unto Daniel and his friends, God's hand showing his power and might over that of the pagan Babylonians. When Daniel requested that they be given pulse and water to eat and drink. Now pulse is uh, the word used here in the King James. But if you look back at the Hebrew, it references more like a a bean or a, a wheat Type item. So more vegetables. He was asking for vegetables and water. And you're like, I wonder why he did that. Well, he was probably thinking back to all of the Old Testament admonitions to stay away from the, the lust of the flesh and the gluttony that comes through the, these wicked devices. If you remember in Proverbs 23, which Daniel probably would have known, Proverbs 23, it says, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies for they are deceptive food. Daniel would have remembered these admonitions of the kings that came before him in Israel. And it says here that Daniel... Being so cautious against his temptations and sin and vice and drunkenness, not wanting to participate in the revelry of Babylon, but wanting to keep his mind sharp and focused on his duties before God, he requested that he be given these vegetables, pulse, and water to drink. Now this could have caused Daniel great grief and harm. What does it tell us here? It says that the the man put in charge over them was like, you're endangering my head. Meaning the king was probably gonna behead him for Daniel not looking as fat as he should from refusing to eat the meat and the wine. Which also means Daniel's life would have been in jeopardy as well. Along with his three friends. How easy would it have been Imagine you're Daniel, you're carried off into captivity, you're a slave, and you're being told, Eat this, the kings ordered you eat this steak and wine. Eat it. Sounds pretty good to me. But Daniel was so devout to the Lord that he said, No, you know what? I'd rather not. How about you give me pulse and water? Daniel was vigilant against sin. This is a admonition to us to wage a war on the sins in our lives and not be given over to the desire of the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. Daniel was making no provision for the flesh here. And this was a difficult no provision for the flesh. You know, for us, we're like, man, it'd be really hard to go without a TV or a cell phone or whatever it is that's making provision for the flesh in our lives. But it's really not. What is hard is when you're a a slave and the king is like, eat this, and you're like, nah, that's gonna make provision for the flesh, I'm good. That's how serious Daniel was about his faith. Daniel knew that sin acts as a snare in our lives, and when we give into it in a small way, when we compromise and break some small rules, maybe I just eat the king's wine and and, and meat, it'll be okay. Okay. Scriptures tell us that that arrow pierces our liver, like the man who followed the harlot for a time. The snare grabs our foot, we're dragged down to death, and Hades, sin is crouching at the door, the Lord told Cain. And Daniel had all these things in mind when he refused to eat. Remember what Joseph did with Potiphar's wife when she was trying to lure him in? It says he ran. He ran away, he didn't walk away, He didn't like casually dismiss himself. He took off running. These men were serious about their walk before God. We're told that Daniel and his friends had grown in favor with the chief of the eunuchs. And in verse eight, that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And he made an offer to the the chief of the eunuchs. He said, look, this was his faith in God. He said, look, test us. You give me what I'm asking and you feed the other guys your meat and wine and look and see who is healthier after an appointed time. And it says that he consented to them in this matter, verse 14, and he proved them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter than the children who ate the portion of the king's meat. And therefore, Melzar gave them permanently the pulse and the water as Daniel requested. And the Lord blessed Daniel and his friends for this. It says that, In verse 17, for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. We can see God bless their faithfulness and this should be a comfort to us that in the midst of judgment, that God is still faithful. This does not mean that God will always deliver us from the dangers that come through these judgments, but we can have faith that God most certainly can if he desires to. As we see later in the book of Daniel, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told to bow down before the idol that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, that they refused. And it tells us that Nebuchadnezzar's countenance changed against them and he grew angry and he told them that they must bow down before it or face certain death. And it says that they answered to the king They said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Their faith, like the faith of Daniel here, to not eat, of the meat, their faith to not bow down before that image. They said, we are confident that our God can deliver us from this fiery furnace and he will deliver us. But if not, if he chooses not to, we're still not gonna worship your golden image. They had full faith and confidence God would rescue them but they were completely okay with the fact that if he chose not to. This is the kind of boldness the church needs today. They're facing certain death, being burned alive, being beheaded here in chapter 1, and they don't compromise even in the smallest of things like eating the meat and drinking the wine. Yet how pathetic sometimes are we as Christians today because we compromise all the time with the world. We don't speak up at work because there's a no harassment policy. We don't uh, throw out our whatever. We, we watch, we listen, we keep our mouths shut. We allow the pagans to walk all over us. And we do it so that we don't rock the boat, we don't stir up trouble. The church today is rife with concession and compromise. And I, I say, let us have no part in it. This kind of commitment from Daniel and his friends is a reminder to us to be faithful in the midst of tribulation as God is faithful to us always, no compromising with evil and making no concessions. The scriptures are very clear on all of these social topics that the world is struggling with today. The scriptures are very clear. The church doesn't need to uh, have a difficult time in answering these things. The fourth point that I would like for us to look at today is that God will humble and bring to its knees the wicked nations and prideful rulers who he uses to chastise his people. So after the Lord uses these wicked rulers to judge and chastise his people, God destroys them. Without hesitation, I can say that God always destroys the wicked. Do not think that just because God is using and exalting this wickedness for a season that God is okay with wickedness or that he turns a blind eye to it. He most certainly does not. The powers of this world, the wicked nations that God uses, are not exempt from judgment just because God uses them as a tool for a season. In this judgment by God upon his people through the hands of wicked men, these wicked men merely are heaping up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath. Romans 9 tells us does not the potter have the right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endures with much long suffering vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? That he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he has prepared unto glory. Scriptures tell us God's prepared vessels for wrath and he uses these vessels by his own will for various purposes in their time. In Psalm 37, and this is a a phenomenal, phenomenal chapter. I don't know if we'll read all of it, but if you turn over to Psalm 37 for a minute, beginning in verse one, it says, Threat not thyself because of evildoers and do not be envious against the workers of iniquity for they will be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord, do good that thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Verse 12, if you skip down to verse 12 says, <clears throat> the wicked plot against the just, they gnash upon him with his teeth and the Lord will laugh at him for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy and to slay such as be of upright conversation, but their swords shall enter into their own heart and their bows shall be broken. A little that the righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked for the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. In the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. The wicked shall perish. The enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke. They will consume away. The wicked borrows and pays not back, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. Verse 34, if you skip down, verse 34 says, "'Wait on the Lord, keep his way. "'He shall exalt thee to inherit the land. "'When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. "'I've seen the wicked in great power, "'spreading himself like a green bay tree, "'yet he passed away. "'He was not. "'I sought him, but yet he could not be found. "'Mark the perfect man, behold the upright.' For the end of that man is peace, but the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in times of trouble. The Psalms are a great comfort to us. The wicked do prosper. They do. Without question, the wicked prosper. But it's done intentionally by the hand of God. And though they may spread themselves out like a great green bay tree, and you're, you're thinking that they're well-established, much like King Nebuchadnezzar, he's described as a great tree later in the book of Daniel. We may look at that at a later time. But just like that great tree, it can be cut down, just like Nebuchadnezzar was cut down later in the book of Daniel the wicked will be destroyed and God will establish the righteous. It happens in his own time and his own season. So how can we apply this to ourselves? Well, while, while we may see the wicked prospering for a season, do not lose hope. Just like Daniel and his friends in the midst of slavery and captivity, where there was no temple being honored, there was no anything. It would be as if all of our churches were abolished and it was just us, slaves to a pagan nation, They didn't compromise. They didn't lose hope. Daniel and his friends maintained faithful obedience to God. For us today, do not sit down and eat the meat and the wine of this wicked age. Do not compromise. Do not yield your children over to the workers of darkness. Be the light that shines bright. As Sam reminded us, we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. But we have to go out and bring that salt. We have to touch the world around us. We have to season the world. But even if the kings of this day, the presidents, the governors, the congressmen, if they tell you to eat the wine, to bow down before the image, whatever that image is, whatever it is that they demand, while not a literal image today, whatever pagan concept they're trying to shove at us, don't compromise. If it's pronouns or destroying the family or denying biblical patriarchy or feminism or idolatry or sexual morality, neglecting your children, turning them over to indoctrination, whatever the meat and the wine, whatever the idol is, resist. Do not bow down. Stand firm in your faith. Read the scriptures diligently. Do not give in because the judgment of God is coming upon the wicked and the righteous will inherit the land. Do not yield. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us the strength and the wisdom to be able to stand firm in a ungodly age. Lord, various times and seasons come where your temple is honored, and then there's other times where it's devastated. And Lord, today we see many a church dishonored, your word dishonored. Many uh, wicked men prosper today. But Lord, we know it's just a season. Most likely it's a season for our own chastisement, for abandoning your truth, for not walking in righteousness before you. Lord, I pray that we would learn from these mistakes, that we would sober up, be vigilant, be like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that we would not bow down, that we would not eat the meat and the wine, that we would stand firm in your holy word that you've given to us, that we would be a light in the world, salt, seasoning to the dying around us. Father, I pray that your gospel would go forth as you promise, and that it would change the hearts and souls of many, that you would lead this nation into repentance, and that we would walk before you in righteousness all the days of our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit In the name of Jesus, I ask all of this, amen.